Well, good morning. Um, if, if you've been here with us from the start or even for any extended period of time, you know that change is one of our constants here. And uh, as we've grown, we've had to make a number of adjustments. The latest one is the new seating arrangement. You notice we have the chairs back there to the, to the back wall. Um, we've been maxing out at a number of our services, and we have to make sure that we're honoring fire codes and things. And so see that brown strip that kind of goes along the outside edge? That needs to be remain open uh, so that people can get out in the event of emergency. So we're just going to ask that as we do fill up, if you could do the best you can as you, as you are, finding the seats that are within the footprint that we've laid down instead of uh, freestyling with the chairs, that would really be helpful from the community center standpoint. So thanks for that. And thanks to those of you who are filling up here from the front and in the middle and making it all work. We want to make room for everybody that God sends our way. Well, um, last week... I tried to bring back another thing that we had done some time ago, and that was to, to make sure that each week we try to pray a blessing from Scripture over one another. And so here's the Scripture that we asked uh, you to pray over me and that I prayed over you last week. It's from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. I'd love to start with this again. So please receive this blessing as we begin this message. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Oh, thank you. Um, this week, I experienced this blessing in a very practical way. It was a very unexpected way, but it was very concrete. I just want to quickly tell you the story. Tuesday is a big meeting day for me, and this last Tuesday was no exception. I had five meetings, each one as important as the next, stacked one on top of the other. So it was important for me to get out of the house because I hadn't had time to prep for any of them. So I'm thinking if I get in early enough, I'll be underprepared, but I'll be less underprepared than I would be if I uh, didn't get there as early as I could. So I'm, I'm in a rush in the morning, and as I'm in the shower getting ready, I hear a knock on the door, and it's Laura, my wife, who was planning to bring our oldest daughter to school, and she says, Chris, the garage door is broken. The garage door is broken. Now, that wouldn't be a problem if we had a nice light aluminum garage door. But our house was built during the height of the Cold War. And I, <laughs> I think that this garage door was designed in such a way as to withstand a nuclear blast um, should that happen. So the problem is, is that both of our vehicles are stuck in this bomb shelter of our garage that we've got. And I go out, and it's bad. It's bad. The, the, the garage door is only a tiny bit up, and it's all like this. And there's a snapped cable, and there's this... this um, roller that's wedged in such a way where this is going to be a mess. And so I'm thinking, this is just not good. This is not good. All departing flights to Emma's school and my office would be considerably delayed on an, a time when there was no margin. But here's where your prayers made a real difference. Because as I'm getting a pro pry bar and tools to try to take this thing out, um, I had a sense of peace come over me. Oh, good. That's good, Rick. <laughs> I had a sense of peace, which is not the normal emotion that I would have in those situations. I had peace. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit was there. And I believe the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear, if you are stressed about a garage door, your life is pretty good. Right? Right. And so that was Tuesday. And then comes Wednesday, which puts everything in perspective. On Wednesday, a 28-year-old guy and a 27-year-old woman dropped off their six-month-old daughter at Grandma's, and you know the rest. Went in, shot up a place, 
And this Christmas season, there's at least 14 families that are making funeral arrangements in the San Bernardino area. One funeral is for the mother of a two-year-old. Another is for the father of several kids, ages 1 to 14. And then this one, maybe you heard this story. One was a bride-to-be. And not only was she a bride-to-be, whose fiancé now is mourning the loss of his fiancé during Christmas season. It was his birthday when she was killed. And then there's that six-month-old girl who was dropped off at Grandma's house. What do the caregivers tell this six-month-year-old as she grows up and says, where's my mommy and daddy? What do you tell that girl? You know, what do you tell her when she's orphaned by her own parents who chose to go and murder innocent people and then have a shootout with the police? Well, when you consider the depth of pain and suffering that's happening right now in California, headlines like this should be expected. We pulled this slide right from the headlines. Many of you have seen this. It's from the New York Daily News, and the headline reads, God isn't fixing this. Now let's just take all the politics out because there's clearly a political motivation here. Take the politics out. This is a question that a lot of people are asking as they look at our world today. And not just in the United States, around the world. Here's a question, if we could put the next question on the screen. Anyone have a rough idea how many Syrian refugees there are right now? There's a lot, aren't there? You know, I googled it and the number ranged everywhere from 6 million to 12 million. You know, nobody knows the number for sure, but the estimates are just staggering. So you would think other people would look at that situation, and they would say, okay, why isn't God fixing this? Millions of people having to flee their homeland because of violence in the name of religion. Why isn't God fixing this? Well, Syria is an area that needed to get fixed for a long, 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 long time. Long time. Um, if you're not familiar with the region, I drew this amazing map over here. Um, there's going to be a day where I'm far enough ahead where we can get this on the slides and everything like that. But I have this amazing hand-drawn map. Um, we've got modern-day Turkey is up here. This is the Mediterranean Sea. Here's Syria right here. Iraq, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. Israel is right here. And that comes into play because as I was looking at the scriptures today and opening them up, there's a Syria connection that I didn't plan on. God, the Holy Spirit directs. So thanks to those of you who pray for these messages each and every week because I couldn't have planned this. What I want to look right now at is an example from the scriptures because the Bible has a lot of history that goes way back from that area. The Bible contains more than history, but it also contains history. And what we're going to look at is a section of the scripture. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is a collection of ancient documents that take all kinds of different forms over all kinds of different time periods. This is a section that we now call First and Second Kings in our Bibles. This section that we're going to look at predates uh, the year 561 B.C. We don't know exactly when it was written, but it was written sometime before 561 B.C. And the passage we're going to look at has a Syria connection. And also, I want to just give you a heads up too, um, this passage we're going to look at, this is one of the reasons why the kids aren't with us in here every Sunday. From time to time, people ask, why don't we have the kids in with us every week? Because the Bible's got stuff like this that we grown-ups need to take a look at. So here's, um, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to start with verse 24. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting with verse 24. I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one uh, free. Yeah, each and every week, we keep a stack of them at the, uh, the tables, at the entrances. We also have a reference in your 
um, bulletin that has a free Bible app that's a great one. We'd encourage you to take a look at. All right, here we go. 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, let's just look at verse 24, and then we'll continue on more after that. Um, Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army, and he went and he besieged Samaria. Now, you see the word Samaria, you're like, what does that have to do with Israel? At this period of history, Israel had already gone through a civil war, and they had divided into two different nations. You had the southern nation of Judah, and then you had the northern kingdom, and the capital of that kingdom was Samaria. So they, this army comes in from Syria and surrounds the capital city. That's what besieging is. Ben-Hadad of Syria was waging war against the northern kingdom of Israel. And I wish, again, every Sunday I wish this, but I wish we had more time. If you would, I would encourage you to write down in your notes chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 5, because the context is fascinating as you look back at what came right before this. Write down chapter 5. Some of you are familiar with the stories but just may not see the connection to this story. In chapter 5 and what leads up to chapter 6, you've got the account of a Syrian commander named Nathan He comes right before this. He's a Syrian military officer who was miraculously healed by an Israelite prophet, the very people they're attacking. An Israelite prophet um, had healed him prior to this invasion. In fact, that prophet, I believe, was in the city at the time. And you'll also come across an account where an entire Syrian army was graciously spared annihilation by the army of Israel. That comes right before this. So all that to say, there are important lessons in chapter 5 in this whole section of Scripture about human nature and about appeasement and about the sovereignty of God. But for the sake of time, let's jump right into what happens when Ben-Hadad, whose name means son of the God, Hadad, when he surrounds the city of Samaria, he cuts them off and begins to starve them to death. Picking up with verse 25. And then there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. Not meaning a natural famine, meaning they're being starved because there's no food. They've surrounded the city. They've cut off all supplies. Nothing is coming in or going out. And they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cob of dove's dung was selling for five shekels of silver. Now, I don't know if we have a reference point for a siege like this, for being in a city that's surrounded by, you know, whatever, wilderness, desolate wilderness, to be completely surrounded, no food is coming in, no water is coming in, there's no hope of escape. Your hope is either starvation or death by the sword, or worse. That's what's going on here. And nobody, it says that, you know, a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver, nobody is eating donkey. I, I tried to think of an equivalent, especially the head, you know. What, what's being described here is akin to the Schwann's man paying top dollar to eat the cab from someone else's truck. The donkey is your income. This is your, your, your means of, of support. And nobody pays a week's salary for a pint of pigeon poop, you know, whether it's for food or for fuel. What's being communicated here is this is a desperate situation. This is an absolutely desperate situation where we'll give our life savings to eat the head of a donkey. And it gets worse. It gets worse as the siege continues. Picking up with verse 26. Now as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall in Samaria, a woman cries out to him saying, Help, my lord, my king. And he said, The lord can't help you. What am I going to do? 
And I was struck by how that response sounds a lot like that headline that we just read, doesn't it? God isn't fixing this. What am I supposed to do? But the king comes to his senses a little bit. He says, okay, what's your trouble? She answers him. And she says, this woman over here said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today. And then we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and we ate him. And the next day I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. O king, fix this. Does it get any darker than this? And these are the children of Israel. These are God's chosen people that this is happening to. And I can imagine there's people asking, where's God? And why isn't he fixing this? Now, if you are able to sever your head from your heart, then you can answer that question. Because from a strictly intellectual, rational position, this makes sense. They had walked away from God. They had chosen to, to follow other gods. All right, go. This is the result of that. Purely rational thinking, this is just on God's part. He is perfectly holy. He's given them life. He said, you choose life, you choose death. They chose death. Here's death. It's, if, you, if you want, and people all the time, they, they, they challenge God and they go, God isn't rational. Okay, you want rational, that's rational. He said, choose death. You chose death. The lesser gods were unable to save them from the likes of Ben-Hadad. We've spoken before the significance of sin. When we turn our back on God and we turn it back on his will, we turn our back on his ways, and we all do what's right in our own eyes, then what we see is this. We see sin spreading like a cancer. And I don't just throw that word around because cancer took the life of my dad. So I say that with the full weight of that word. It spreads like a cancer. That's what happens with sin. In his grace, in his grace, before the book of Genesis even came to a close when sin had come in, God chose a people to, cho to serve as a light to all nations. He miraculously blessed these people. He multiplied their number. He delivered them from slavery. He gave them good and just laws. He brought them into a good land. He drove out nations more powerful than they. But the people continued to rebel against God, their Savior, over and over again, despite God's warnings and despite his wooings. They chose death instead of life. From a strictly rational, intellectual standpoint, the people had chosen to walk down their own path. This is where it led them. And as their enemies closed in on every side, the prophets warned of another famine yet to come. Here's an example of that famine from Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I'll send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And we've spoken before of that. This came to pass, didn't it? There's about a 400-year period of history between the close of the Old Testament, the start of the New, 400 years of history where God appears to be silent, just as the messenger of God said would happen. These 400 years, they are filled with tyranny. They're filled with exile. We've got records that come to us from that region. 
They're filled with shattered hope. History records rulers like Antiochus who placed a statue of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem and then sacrificed a pig to Zeus. If you want a God who's strictly rational, you want a God who's completely predictable, then you should expect only silence from this God or wrath and judgment. For there is none among us who has not rebelled against God's righteous decrees. There's not one among us who doesn't fall short of the glory of God. We are too slow to give God credit. We are too quick to blame him. But, but, the God of the Bible is full of mercy and full of grace. Can I get an amen? Embedded in the prophecies of silence and judgment were prophecies of a Messiah whose coming would fix that which was broken. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen. This Savior wouldn't be like the other little M messiahs who would rally others to battle against flesh and blood. There were plenty of those, and there still are today, plenty of little H heroes who promised deliverance, and their promise of deliverance dies with them. No, this advent of this Savior was going to be different. He was coming to do more than to deliver us from the likes of Ben-Hadad or Saeed Farouk. He was coming to defeat the very power of sin and death itself. And I got this picture in my head as I was preparing this week. I had this visual. I, I, I could picture a, um, a person standing on the shore. So I'd encourage you to do this. Imagine yourself standing. I tried to find a picture that could sum it up, but there was none that could do it justice. Imagine you're standing on the shore, and you're looking out at the horizon, and there's a hurricane coming. And it's ferocious. It's ominous. It's the completely pitch black clouds. There's lightning. There's whirlpools. Imagine you're standing, and you're seeing this thing. It's coming. It's rolling in, right? And behind you are all kinds of little M messiahs, and they're arguing about, well, which kind of boards should we board up our window with? What size screws should we use to fasten it with? And they're all preparing for this hurricane that's going to come. And then there's one who steps out to the shoreline, and he says to the wind and the waves, he says, peace be still. That's what we're talking about with Jesus of Nazareth. Not another little M messiah who's like, use a three-inch screw, use a two-inch screw, Okay, he says to the winds and the waves, be still. That's what we're talking about here because he came to defeat the power of sin and death itself. That's who we're talking about. And he is spoken of by prophets who said things like this in Micah, six, or Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem, from you in these days to come shall come forth for me one who is, like, who is to be the ruler in Israel from whose coming forth is of old, of ancient days. He shall stand and he'll shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. With all due respect to the New York Daily News, God is making things right. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And he's from the line of Jesse, just as the prophets foretold. This new King David is going to come. He is Emmanuel, which means God's with us. His appearance has ushered in the dawn of a new age. And not only is this new day for the children of Israel, it's for all who would believe in his name. So I would encourage you to take out your blue insert and please write this down. This come Lord Jesus Come, Lord Jesus, is a universal cry. 
whether we know it or not, whether we're saying God should be fixing this or not, this is a universal cry. In fact, one of the things, the challenges I have for, for skeptics and when I fall into my own skepticism is why would we even say things like God should be fixing this unless we knew that we knew that we knew something was broken, unless we knew that we knew that we knew that something isn't right, that this shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't be survival of the fittest. There should be grace and love in this world. There should be redemption. There should be fixing. This is not just natural playing out. There is something that is broken that needs to be restored. And before we close our time together this morning, I want to encourage you to add the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, to your Advent playlist because this is a song that speaks to these deep truths. In fact, I don't know of a song that does a better job of capturing this deep longing for the advent of a Savior like this song. I never looked up the backstory to this song. It was fascinating to take a look at it. Can we fire the next slide, Dory, the one that has the bullets about this song? These are things about this song. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel wasn't composed by some spoiled songwriter in some Hollywood mansion and then recorded later in some swanky studio. This is an ancient song. The lyrics can be dated back to the dark ages. They don't know exactly when this was penned but they trace it back to the Dark Ages, possibly to the ninth century, to a monastery during a time when chaos and ignorance and fear and disease and constant warfare defined generation after generation after generation. The tune came later than that. The tune was assigned to these Latin lyrics by French nuns ministering in Portugal in the 15th century. And then the song was lost to history. It was rediscovered by a 19th century Anglican priest who was ministering to orphans and former prostitutes off the coast of Africa. He's the one that translated the song into English, and from there, it made its way to the United States. This song isn't just an intergenerational song. This is an intercontinental song. It's a gift that was penned by unnamed monks more than 1,200 years ago. It's a gift that was given a tune by nuns in an obscure convent. It's a gift that was rediscovered by a forgotten evangelist off the coast of Africa. And I was thinking how different this song is than most of our holiday songs. A lot of our holiday songs, you can sit in a coffee shop where everything appears perfect, and you can hum along to some of these fun little songs. O come all ye faithful, that's a song that you can sing with broken victims in San Bernardino. You can sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. You can sing that song with refugees who are believers in Syria. You can sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. This is a song that was probably sung by orphans at that orphanage and by those battered women who are trying to put their lives back together as they learn this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it's a song that was chanted by my Christian brothers centuries ago in the midst of a period of history by all other dark periods are measured. It's a song that captures our universal cry, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. 
And this is a longing that goes all the way back. This is a longing that goes back to Adam and Eve crying out when their son Cain murdered his brother Abel. You know, every verse of this song is a message in and of itself. And selecting which verses to highlight this morning was like ordering off a menu at a world-class restaurant. Because time's so limited on Sunday mornings, what we're going to do in just a few minutes, we're going to sing four verses of this song. Four verses. We could have picked any of the verses. We're going to sing a verse like this. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Why does this song transcend time and culture and nationality? Because it's not just your body that longs for restoration. It's not just your soul that is filled with shame and regret. It's not just your relationships that are strained. It's not just your school or your workplace or your city or our state or our nation that needs a Savior. It's our world, all of us, that's broken, isn't it? Every corner of it, it's broken, and we all long for it to be restored. And so with the children of Israel in solidarity, we sing, O come, O branch of Jesse, free your own. From Satan's tyranny, we know that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. From the depths of hell, your people save and give them victory over the grave. Again, the salvation that would come from Jesse's line has the power to do more than save us from our generation's wars. This is a salvation from the power of sin and death itself. This is the confidence to look death in the eye and for death to blink. As you say, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? A new day has dawned with the advent of our Savior. And then we petition God as we sing lyrics like this, O come, O day spring, come and cheer our spirits by your advent, which means you're coming here. Dispense the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. I had to look that word day spring up. It means dawn. right out of the scriptures. The birth of Christ was the dawn of a new age. We're still in the twilight. And with one voice, we sing this. O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of humankind. Bid all of our sad divisions cease and be yourself our king of peace. And one of the things that struck me is as we sing that carol, we're doing that. We're doing that. We're doing what we're singing about. Instead of being all divided, which is just shameful. Isn't it shameful? Let's just call it what it is. It is shameful the way we've allowed ourselves to be divided as God's people. We can't agree on this obscure text. So we're going to pick up our toys and we're going to go over there. It's just shameful, the things that divide us. And when we come with this song, we join as one across denominations, across languages, across generations. We join as one. And we proclaim this amazing truth. The chorus goes like this in this dark song with this haunting tune. There's the great chorus that says, Rejoice, rejoice! Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. And if I be so bold, I want to encourage you to add this addendum to that refrain in your notes. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come and will 
come again. And if you see that quote on the screens, that is directly from the book of Revelation. And those spirit-inspired words were penned by a disciple of Jesus named John. And he was literally writing these words from lonely exile. He wasn't writing them from some comfortable coffee shop, right? He was writing these words from lonely exile after the 11 of his peers had all died violent deaths. And he penned these words, Come, Lord Jesus. And isn't that the same prayer that those ninth century monks were chanting? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, come, Lord Jesus. And he has come. And our full ransom was paid on his Roman cross. And our victory over the grave was guaranteed through his resurrection. And that was just the first coming. When he comes again in glory, all will be as it should be. Amen. And every tear will be wiped one final time from every eye. This is why we're doing this series this Advent. Because we want to encourage you to press into these songs that may seem so simple. And I'll confess, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, for the last couple of years, I hit forward on, you know, skip on that one because the tune is so, you know. But that's the whole point of it, isn't it? That whole, even the tune, everything, is to like bring you in. And there are these gems, these gems out there, these gems, these gifts that have been handed down to us that can pull us into these deep themes and the scriptures and the truths that support them. So let me offer this one more piece here, and then we'll transition into what's called a time of communion with God and with one another. Listening to the sacred songs of Christmas, that's one thing. Living them out, that's another, isn't it? Listening to the sacred songs of Christmas is one thing. Living them out is another. Before this season is through, in this room, we're going to sing a song called Go Tell It on the Mountain. Is there any actionable associated with that song? <laughs> you know it, right? You, what is it? How do you live that out? You go and tell, right? O come, O come, Emmanuel. There's actionables with that song. One of them is just praying the song, invoking the power and presence of God instead of just, you know, singing along. Pray that song. We're going to do this in just a couple minutes. Pray this song. Invoke the power and presence of God into this world. Do our prayers make a difference? Yes, they do. Do I understand how all the mechanism of that works? I don't. God says pray, we pray, and it makes a difference. So part of it is just praying the song. But beyond that, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, God with us. We're to live this out. We are to be his hands and be his feet and to help as he would help and to love as he would love and to speak his truth as he spoke to us. And most of you are already doing this. Here's just a few examples. Take a look. I, this took me all of about three seconds to come up with this list, and I could have triple, quadrupled it. Here are just some of the things that people are doing in our midst. They're mentoring kids and teens. They're serving one another. You are mentoring kids and teens. You're serving one another. You're welcoming strangers. You're challenging cultural norms. You're laying down lesser ideologies. We don't, I don't hear yelling and fighting out in the lobby about political candidates and this and that. I hear discussions. 
but how different it is when we come together. I, we are helping, as a church, we're helping to plant and revitalize other churches. We're sharing the good news. And beyond that, people in this congregation are caring for widows and orphans in Juarez at the second service we're going to commission. Another team that's heading down there on Saturday. We're feeding hungry families in the Shoreview area. We're feeding homeless in Minneapolis and tutoring kids in Minneapolis and buying a whole lot of gifts. Way to go with Ace in the City, pulling that, the gifts off that tree. We're caring for addicts. We are caring for those who are in prison along with their families. In fact, our worship band went in to sing in uh, the local, um, a local Lionel Lakes facility, and they were so struck by the authenticity of our folks coming there they said, you know, there's, I think, five families in the Shoreview area that, um, that have parents who are incarcerated. Could you take care of getting them gifts? And, of course, what did our people say? Oh, of course, of course. Many of you have run for clean water, for people around the world, welcoming refugees. We have one in our midst, and we also have um, a new family that's going to be welcomed in by a brand-new small group. And here's something I found really fascinating and encouraging as I've been preparing our budget. One of the things on my to-do list is to prepare a budget for this year. Take a look at this. Um, in five years, we've increased our meeting and storage spaces budget by 4%. That's not 4% a year. That's 4% since 2011. And here's what I find encouraging. I compared how much we've increased our meeting spaces and storage spaces budget since 2011, and how much we've increased our mission, partners, and community outreach budget? Take a look at the difference. Since 2011, we've increased our mission, partners, and community outreach budget by 255%. And that's just our pooled budget. That doesn't count the sponsorships. That doesn't count all the things that people are doing with ACE in the city. It doesn't count all these things we're doing. Advent is a season when we prepare our hearts and homes for a fresh advent of Christ in our lives. One of the ways we do that is to do an assessment of our lives and say, are we come, will come, Emmanuel people? Are we people who are saying, God, what does it mean for me not only to pray and invoke your presence, what does it mean for me to be your presence wherever I'm present? Isn't it? So as we spend some time now preparing to come along the Lord's table, I would encourage you to ask yourself that question. Am I truly, not just in a cliche, am I truly setting out to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in this broken world where you don't even have to, you turn any direction and you start walking, you'll come across a need. Are we people who are trying to be Jesus as we pray that song?